Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Dave Thompson to discuss his book, Cream, the World's First Supergroup. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today Dave Thompson returns to discuss his book, Cream, How Eric Clapton Took the World by Storm. Dave, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> I'm going to wring you dry, Dave, I promise. Well, um, <laughs> might take some doing. So this subtitle, I got to start with the subtitle. Was that something that the publisher wanted that you focus on Eric Clapton, or do you feel that Eric Clapton is the center of the story? Well, you, I believe, have the paperback version. The yes. original was called Cream, the world's first supergroup. Ah, much more. I hope, I hope they're the same because that's the copy I picked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll work. And, and they definitely were um, the world's first supergroup. But first, yeah. before we get into the history of it, I, you've got – a statement of purpose that I thought was pretty compelling, that the purpose of the book was to trace the mercurial months they played together as they unfolded at the time. Why do you think it's particularly important with Cream to avoid revisionism? Because that's all anybody ever does. I, I grew up, I, I, ne I was never really a Cream fan. The first song I heard by them was Anyone for Tennis. And that remains my favorite song by Cream. And the B-side was Press Rat and Warthog. And that's my second favorite song. <laughs> so I was, so I'd be reading, you know, Cream retrospectives, you know, interviews with them. And it's like, oh, the greatest band ever, you know. And it's like, well, they're a good novelty band. Um, I was never, and I still aren't really, I was never into interminable jamming and three-week drum solos. Um, the history of the band I found absolutely fascinating. But again, as it unfolded, it was fun going through old issues of the UK music press, reading reviews, reading interviews from the time, and seeing how things went, as opposed to just sort of sitting up in my ivory tower looking back over the years and saying, oh, yes, they were so fabulous. They weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the fascinating thing about looking back at accounts from the time is how much perceptions and audience expectations have flipped because people yeah. in the late 60s, by all accounts, rock audiences were mad for 15 minute drum solos and they could not get enough I, of this expanded improvisation. I've I can't imagine what they were on. Is there any recreational substance in the world that makes you want to sit and listen to somebody building a bookcase? 
<laughs> Which is a little unfair to Ginger Baker. His drum solos, I have to say, are better than, say, the guy from Iron Butterfly or so many of the <laughs> heavy metal oh, bands. Okay, well, Ginger was building three bookcases at once. <laughs> Fair everybody, enough. Everybody else was just taking it out on a piece of wood. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. And again, that was something that I wanted to focus on as opposed to my own non-appreciation of drum solos. Because uh, left to my own devices, it'd have been World of Fire is great until you get to Toad. Um, but no, let's see what people were saying at the time, see how audiences responded, you know, listen to bootlegs, fast forward through the bits I don't want to hear, but catch, you know, bootlegs are great because you really do get a feel for the audience because it was always, you know, someone standing at the back with a reel-to-reel tape recorder. God knows how they got it in there. Um, and it would just be, you know, this sort of boomy racket with the audience going, you know, crazy in the bits that they considered deserved it. And that, that was very eye-opening. Yeah, you talk about how the band ultimately felt trapped by the audience adulation. That they didn't think it yeah. was sophisticated at all. They were just applauding anything that happened on stage. Yeah, and Hendrix had the same complaint. I mean, that's the other, you mentioned audiences went mad for drum solos. Audiences went mad for spoon solos. <laughs> for some, yeah, if a performer was beloved enough, they could get up there and they could do anything. And the audience would just whoop. And you know, Hendrix was very voluble complaining about that. Cream were probably right behind him in doing so. Yeah, you've got a, a sentence I want to quote here that, that you say, they formed a band. It became a circus. They dreamed of freedom. They were enslaved by routine. They hoped they'd be liked. They were worshipped. And somewhere in the midst of it all, the music got lost. Can you expand yeah. on that a bit? Um, do I really need to? I think, you know, they complained that they were trapped, but they played to their jailers in a way. Um, Robert Stigwood, who uh, managed them and looked after their label, um, or owns their label actually, was quite a hard taskmaster from all accounts. And he saw which way people liked their music to go and tried to make sure that they stuck to it. So, you know, Let's do, you know, you want to do a new studio album? Great, we'll stick a live album on it as well. And you're breaking up? Okay, let's do a live album. And let's record lots of live shows and put them out over the years. Um, and I think, you know, they got to the point, you know, they were bored, they wanted to stop. Why write new songs? You know, they're not going to be cream songs, therefore let's just go and play Crossroads for a week. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> and they did. It's probably, still, it's probably still going somewhere. There's one version that they're still playing today, you know, 50 odd years later. <laughs> and one last the sort of preceding statement before we get into the history. And this is, you said, Cream did not kick down any doors. They built the doorway in the first place. Can you describe what it is about Cream in their particular moment in time that they 
created a whole new world or opened a whole new world of rock music. And that, I think, is where we get to one of the things that fascinated me about Cream was that nobody else, you know, certainly not the bands that the three of them came out of, were going out there and just you know, jamming the blues interminably and then throwing in you know, a fabulous pop song like you know, I Feel Free or Tales of Brave Ulysses. And there was that wonderful dichotomy, but they made it they made it okay for bands to do the soloing and the jamming and you know just the endless what people in the late sixties, early seventies loved. They made it okay. Um, well that again, them and Hendrix. It's like you they're two they're the same side of two different coins. Hmm. In a That's- way. An interesting way to put it. Yeah, I mean, and the weird thing is, like, Cream was always trapped in two worlds. If they jammed interminably, as you say, which I'm a little uh, I'm more forgiving of their jams. I think I think some of them can be quite entertaining. Some of them get a bit tedious, and especially later on, um, they get uh, you know the later that the earlier that you can catch them live, the recordings of them live, the more powerful they are. But they were caught in this weird thing when when they wrote a compelling pop song, they would get slagged by about it. Yeah. you know, and and it's a weird period in history when the critics were actually calling for more of these long jams and the and the their I think their masterpiece, Israeli Gears, their second album. Is full yeah. of these concise, brilliant psychedelic rockers and and pop songs, and they they got slagged off because they didn't have a big long jam. And then, uh, just a year later, John Landau and Rolling Stone really ripped them to pieces for doing what they've been asked to do <laughs> and doing what <laughs> people love them to do. But let's hear one of these sort of oddities from their discography. This is their very first single, and and is a very odd fit for the cream discography this is wrapping paper and this is from an appearance on french tv in 1966 And that was Wrapping Paper, Cream's first single, which came out in late 1966 and never quite met audience demand. This is not what the audiences that were already very excited about them in London um, wanted to hear. And it was a minor hit on British radio, although there's allegations that pirate radio perhaps was persuaded or convinced or had some sort of relationship with Stigwood's reaction label because every single that reaction put out seemed to have done very well on Radio London. What a terrible thing to say. (laughs) Please forgive (laughs) me. (laughs) Yes, sadly it is. That was how the business worked in those days. It's how you broke a band. You, you know, went across to the pirate ship or went to their office, London office and gave them presents. And there'd be a record in there as well. And you know, they'd say, thank you for the presents. Um, we'll play your record. 
It probably still happens. Well, I shouldn't say that, but I'm sure it still happens in some places, in some areas today. Yeah, it definitely went on in the states long after the practice was officially made illegal. Um, you know, yeah. in the 80s and 90s, you you record companies had paid a huge chunk of their budget to people who were quote promoters to get records on the radio in America. Of course, the BBC cleaned all this up when they shut down pirate radio. I'm sure. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had their own. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's funny. At the late in the late seventies, it blew up again as a major problem. And I mean, one of the you know, but record companies are smart. You know, they found ways around it. You know, if you can't payola the DJs, you payola the audience. Limited edition picture disc singles were a fabulous way of pushing your record into the chart very high. And yet you go back now and try to find a black vinyl copy of this hundred, you know, several hundred thousand selling limited edition picture disc or colored vinyl. You cannot find it on black vinyl. Hmm. And you have to say, well, it was a limited edition of 3,000, and it got to number three in the charts. That's odd. Yes. In the days when, you know, to get into the charts, you had to sell, you know, 700, or that high in the charts, you had to sell 750,000. So, you know, record companies are smart. They couldn't do payola. So we're lucky in a way that Cream came from a more innocent age. Otherwise, everything would have been on picture disc. <laughs> and we would have seen more Ginger Baker's teeth. I shouldn't. I shouldn't uh, disparage the dead. Um, because well, I was just going to say we wouldn't be able to play them because picture this sound horrible. Uh, and there's... then you think, Toad. Oh, that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> um, no, I... So let's get to the history of Cream. So the three of them came together, and the value proposition originally, and the, and the reason they're called the cream originally was they felt they were the cream of British blues players. Um, they all came out of the same British blues boom as uh, Blues Incorporated, Cyril Davis, the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, the Pretty Things. Tell us a little bit about Bruce and Baker and Clapton and how they fit into those different scenes in their early bands. Well, well, I mean, of course, Clapton was ex-Yardbirds. And um, from there, he moved on to John Mayall's band, which was probably really the cream of British blues. Uh, whether you are a fan or not, there's no denying that they turned the blues from something that British people played badly. Um, was it... Um, Oh, gosh, tip of my tongue, who said, you know, these English boys want to play the blues badly. And they Sonny, Sonny Boy Williamson, yeah, who, who yeah. <laughs> was backed up by the, the Yardbirds um, yeah. on a tour of Britain and, and threw that out there. I think that made it onto the band's last waltz um, movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, Mail was as good as any contemporary American band and probably better. And when you think that includes uh, Paul Butterfield's lot, you know, that's quite an achievement. You know, that you could play authentic sounding blues rock coming from Manchester, living in a tree, apparently, was, you know, quite phenomenal. Um, and Britain did have a lot of very skillful bluesmen. So Cream's claim was instrumentally 
people tended to regard Clapton as pretty good at what he did, hence the Clapton is God thing. So, you know, his history, which, you know, would be the Roosters, the Yardbirds, John Mayle. Um, he was God, so he could he could be in any band that wanted a form that said it was the best musicians. Ginger and Jack is harder to justify in some ways because they came through the Graham Bond organization who I absolutely adore. Um, that was, and it probably shows in the book as well. Um, you know, Graham Bond was one of the great British bluesmen um, who could also play jazz. And they were a fantastic backup band. Um, the fact that they hated one another in a way, or disliked one another intensely, in a way added to the excitement of the band because you had a bassist and a drummer playing together but almost working against one another. And just the the sense of competition and the sense of, oh, he's doing something good, I'm going to do something even gooder, was... I mean, even shows through on the records. I mean, it's palpable. Yeah, so the, the first... So that's really the history. Jack Bruce had, like, his brief stint in Manfred Mann, which was a little like putting, I know, Bono in Black Sabbath. But... <laughs> You know, he was, again, yeah, it was something to do while they were waiting for something else to happen, which turned out to be cream. And let's hear our second song, and then when we come back, we'll talk about how they came together. And this is a song called NSU, and this is live from the Grandi Ballroom in Detroit in 1967. That was Cream's original composition, NSU, live from the Grandi Ballroom in Detroit in 1967. So this shows that we're not afraid to go absolutely into the lion's den, the home of the MC5 and the Stooges and Ted Nugent and Bob Seger and so many of the Detroit um, self-styled ferocious rockers of the time who prided themselves on blowing away um, out-of-town bands, who feasted on the San Francisco bands. And um, you d hear different accounts. It seems like when you when you get the perspective from the Detroit brands, they like to brag about how they blew Cream off the stage. But when you talk to Cream fans or people who are at the shows, it seems that Cream more than held their own there. Um, well, let's talk about how they came together. So Bruce had briefly been in John Mayall's band, and I gotten to know Clapton. The three of them had jammed at the Richmond Jazz Festival in 1964. And then Ginger Baker decided he wanted to form a band with Eric Clapton. He had gotten some money. He had a fancy car. He showed up at a gig and gave Clapton a ride home and put him to the proposition. And then Clapton suggested Jack Bruce. How did Baker react? Um, 
Well, well, before we get to that, you, you did miss out a very interesting point about the song NSU. By all it means. Was, I think it was the first hit single that specifically referenced the venereal disease in its title. <laughs> <laughs> that is an important historical nugget. <laughs> it is. <laughs> One that Eric Clapton suffered from, it was on his medical report. <laughs> you, have, you have NSU and... And Jack Bruce thought, oh, that's a good song title. <laughs> <laughs> you never can tell what'll make a man whistle. Um. Um, I mean, Ginger Baker was not happy to be reunited with Jack Bruce, but I think he also realized, you know, there was a lot of back and forth thing and I'm not going to do it. And yes, I am. And no, I'm not. But I think ultimately he realized that, you know, he wanted to play the captain Badly, um, not in the Sonny Boy Williamson respect. Uh, he he really wanted to play with Clapton, and he knew that Bruce would be an asset to that. And I think he hoped that Clapton would act as a sort of buffer between the two of them, or maybe he didn't because Ginger did like to uh, argue. Yeah, uh, he had kicked. Uh... Bruce out of the Grand Bond organization at Knife Point. So, yeah. um, you know, and if you've seen the documentary uh, about Ginger that came out a few years ago, he was still whacking the director of that with his cane and it's well into his 70s. So, um, a formidable force and a big dude. I, mean, I, I have to say that Ginger Baker was one of the most obnoxious interviews I have ever done. Not because he was rude to me or hit me with his cane or anything. Every question I asked him, he turned around to money and how he was ripped off. And there was a story from the Bond organization. It's like, you know, in the first gig, we first out of town gig we did, you know, we went so-and-so, we stopped for a meal. They never paid me back for the meal. It was, and he knew how much it was. <laughs> <laughs> He knew how much they had spent, you know, he had spent on petrol that he was meant gas that he was meant to get back and never did. And I just said it was like sitting with an accountant for an hour hearing somebody else's account uh, expenses. <laughs> and that gets to one of the fundamental tensions of the band, which was the songwriting, which is the most lucrative aspect of, of being yeah. a, a, a band. And the songwriting was dominated by Jack Bruce and a poet named Pete Brown, who Baker ironically had brought into um, the scene to write lyrics for all of them, but he only clicked with Bruce. And Bruce was yeah. a Scotsman, and not to make ethnic generalizations, but Bruce wasn't about to share the publishing royalties on songs he felt he had composed exclusively no. by himself. <laughs> well, he yeah. yeah, apart from sort of Jagger Richards and Lennon McCartney, who sort of share each other's. And there's not many bands, particularly at that level, where, you know, the singer says, oh, let's share it. Or the writer says, let's share it. Um, so you can't really blame Bruce for that. And, you know, let's face it, without his songwriting, Cream would have been a much poorer concern. You know, Ginger's best effort was Restaurant Warthog, which of which I will hear no ill, 
you know, Clapton's best effort was Badge, but neither of them ever reached those heights again. And Clapton had help. <laughs> yes, George Harrison, um, <laughs> no lightweight. But Bruce was just sitting there turning out these things. And the majority of them were great songs, whatever the band did to them afterwards. Yeah, it's delightful stuff. Pete Brown was very influenced by Sid Barrett and what he was doing with Pink Floyd in London at the time. So it was very up to the minute and current. But from the beginning, there was a misapprehension. It wasn't just the fans who wanted long blues jams. It was also their record label in America. Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic Records, who had been an early fan of Eric Clapton, um, he was pushing when when – Cream comes to record their second album in the States. Erdogan was baffled as to why is Jack Bruce singing? Why are they doing this psychedelic garbage, which is what he called Sunshine of Your Love, which becomes you know their yeah. anthem and a number five hit single. How did they get past the block of Ahmet Erdogan wanting to turn them into Eric Clapton's blues band? Um I think you know when it comes down to it is you're up against Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce, and they were you know they refused, and they they were also. I think even Armit Erdogan was smart enough to know that you're not going to have to hit singles with Jack Bruce's uh, with Eric Clapton's blues band, and hit singles were essential for selling albums at the time. So there was, you know, there. I mean, there were a lot of, there were a lot of pressures on everybody involved in that band. Really, everybody had their vision of how it should be, and ultimately, we could say Armit won, but that was only because that's the way the audience went. I mean, Disraeli Gears still is a fantastic record. Yeah, absolutely, from top to bottom. And um, the yeah. first album, Fresh Cream, struggles a bit. It's got more of the blues stuff, and it's also really oddly recorded. They recorded in a British studio with only four tracks, and the the mix, you know, just sometimes the guitar solo is so overpowering you can't even hear the rhythm section, and et cetera. But by the second album, they had Tom Dowd, they had an eight-track, they're recording in Atlantic Studios. And I love the anecdote in there about Booker T. Jones of Booker T. and the MGs giving Sunshine or Your Love the thumbs up and that um, helping turn Erdogan's opinions around. But let's take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, I want to talk about a meteorite that hit London in late 1966 and really impacted Crean. And when I say a meteorite hit London in late 66, what I mean is a young man named Jimi Hendrix showed up in London. Chas Chandler, the former bassist of the Animals, had discovered him playing in Greenwich Village. Linda Keith, Keith Richards' girlfriend, soon to be ex-girlfriend, uh, at the time had had hipped Chandler to Jimi Hendrix. Brings Hendrix to London, quietly asks if he can sit in with the cream, and Hendrix shows no mercy. Pulls out all the stops and dramatically impacts not just the London music scene, but also Eric Clapton's self-image. How did I mean? What were the, some of the positive things that happened for Clapton after seeing Hendrix, and what were some of the negatives? 
Well, I think the positives was, is what I was saying earlier, you know, two sides of different coins. Um, Hendrix showed the way that Cream could go, but whereas Hendrix was just the guitar, Cream could do it with all three instruments. So that was definitely a positive. The negative, of course, was the hair. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Clapton's perm. You have to say it. I mean, all three of them, but Eric in particular, it was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work. You look silly. Yeah, Hendrix's afro was, you know, it was fabulous. Um, you know, the rest of Hendrix's band, not so good. But, you know, Cream just, they just made themselves look second rate. I think, and it's good that they already had image and audience. Because yeah, otherwise, people might have mocked. People did mock. <laughs> Fortunately, they weren't the only ones to, to get perms in, in a big rush. Sid Barrett had a pretty tragic perm there. Uh, Ace Kefford of The Move um, oh, had... Yeah had a perm that um, both of those guys, of course, flame out in LSD psychosis. So perhaps the perm had something to do with that. But it, it really does seem to me that that Hendrix's arrival is part of this process of throwing cream off balance so that they're never, despite being this super group and despite being you know one of the most formidable live bands on either side of the Atlantic and getting these glowing audience receptions, they're never quite in sync, whether it's putting out singles like Wrapping Paper or later on Anyone for Tennis that don't quite fit in or getting slagged off for writing you know, concise pop songs instead of putting blues jams on their records. And then when they do put blues jams on their records, they get slagged off for that. So they're never quite fit. I mean, it, it's really odd. And, and Reading the book, you get a feel for why Clapton felt so hemmed in and and wanted to escape. But and you talk about their peers, it wasn't just the Hendrix experience. It was also the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart and Ron Wood, as well um, as as the Who. But you talk about another band that you refer to as the baleful influence of Bob Dylan and the band. What was the baleful influence of Bob Dylan and the band, and how did it impact Cream? Well, it was the same baleful influence that they had on the Beatles, really, in that you know the guitarist fell in love with the band, and they influenced Clapton's outlook, um, ambitions as much as they did George Harrison's. Whereas George was a, yeah, I don't really how to put it. It's like George had enough faith in himself, despite everything we hear and are hearing from this uh, interminable television thing. Um, George seemed to have faith in himself and in his songs. Clapton seemed to be suffering some kind of crisis of confidence which he immediately you know, threw himself into uh, once Cream broke up and Blind Faith proved to be an absolute turkey. Um, he threw himself into the Delaney and Bonnie experience, which was the closest he was going to get to playing the band's music without joining the band. But 
you know, even during the last days of cream, he was sort of agitating for some kind of change in the band's approach and attitudes which the other two were never going to go along with and the record companies certainly weren't going to go along with. Imagine if Cream had become an Americana band. <laughs> that was a painful <laughs> thought. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I go back and forth on Americana. Sometimes I can appreciate it. It's never been my particular cup of tea. No. And I understand, like, you know, you talk about how this – how Cream was kind of a combination of Eric Clapton's country blues influence, which Baker and Bruce really didn't have. They were really more British jazz bows, although Bruce yeah. also had classical training. Um, and they, they knew some of the blues repertoire, but they weren't deep into the Delta blues the way that Clapton was. But they brought this free jazz concept of, of you know, Ornette Coleman had really opened their minds to, to the possibilities of, of improvising without regard to key or chord structure. A three-piece band was perfect for that because you didn't have a keyboard guy locking in chords and, and handcuffing you. But when you listen to it, and when I talk to you know serious jazz musicians about it, it seems like Clapton was very limited. He was a blues guitarist. He wasn't somebody yeah. like Michael Bloomfield or Jeff Beck who could incorporate jazz or modal elements. He just played the blues and he played them ferociously. And to me, that's kind of the whole fun of the thing is that Clapton's just this pit bull taken off the leash and he only has one trick, which is to go pedal to the metal and, <laughs> you know, as hard as he can go. And it, it doesn't have a second idea after that. But it works for me for six or seven minutes. Once it's fifteen or twenty, <laughs> they kind of lose me. And 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 as I continue, you can hear why Clapton was frustrated. But nonetheless, there's a certain chemistry of it, and I never really understood the jazz aspect of it really until I read this book and listened to it more. Because you always write off British jazz musicians, or at least I do. But yeah, I mean that's, that is sort of the historical norm. But I mean, that scene, I mean, this, we think of the scene now and it's dominated by people like Acker Bilk and Humphrey Littleton, who were very much the polite face of British jazz. But there was a lot going on underground. And when you think of the more deliberate jazz rock bands that came along in the very late 60s, 70s, you know, I suppose Coliseum are the best known. You know, you can really see, well, they didn't learn that from the Americans. And they, yeah, and they're not, you know, they didn't learn it from the blues. I mean, it came from these nasty little clubs in dodgy parts of London and, and the provinces where people just went and jammed jazz in the same way as they were jamming the blues. Yeah, and and John McLaughlin, who ascends to the absolute pinnacle of jazz when he when he plays with Miles Davis, he had actually been briefly in the Grand Bond organization until yeah. Ginger Baker fired him for being grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, to me, it's like if somebody can play with John McLaughlin, they're pretty legit. And 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 um, you know, Baker and Bruce, I think, were contributing as much. And when you listen to Live Cream. They really shine compared to a lot, especially the San Francisco bands. Um, yeah, you know they they could 
sustain those improvisations much better than other bands. But one another thing that I found interesting was that they didn't really fit in with the British psychedelic scene. And um, let me play our next song. And this is Anyone for Tennis, which yeah. seems like the sort of thing that would have fit in with the British psychedelic scene. But um, when we come back, tell us, you can tell us why they didn't fit in with the psychedelic scene. This is Anyone for Tennis, Cream Stingle from 1968. Anyone for Tennis, Cream Single from 1968. And, you know, uh, your favorite, as you said. And and the thing is, when you look back at 1967, and it's the same thing, you know, we talked about with the Donna Summer thing. When you look back at 1977, you think it's all the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Clash and the Jam, but it really wasn't. And 67, you think, oh boy, you know, it, it's Sunshine for Your Love. It's, it's Strange Brew. It's Jimi Hendrix Experience. It's Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd. It's The Move. It's The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper. But it was really a lot more Engelbert Humperdinck and Tom Jones. Um, in this period, but it was also there was a British psychedelic scene. There was the, the UFO Club in London, and a ton of festivals. And Cream only played one or two, and basically opted out of the British psychedelic movement. How and why did that happen? Uh, they were focusing on America, plain and simple. Um, America was where the money was. America was, you know, British bands less so now, I think, but. For a long time, for British bands, it was America was the goal. They wanted to break America, which is why you think of I mean, any group. You know, think of Chicken Shack, think of Fleetwood Mac. Um, they spent all their time over here, and you know, Britain would get a three-week tour, and America would get a three-month tour. And okay, size of the country, etc. But then they'd be back a few weeks later for another three-month tour because it's where the money was. You have a million, you know, you have a major hit in the US, it's not going to be a million seller like it would in Britain. It's going to be a you know, five million seller. So that's, that's what a lot of it was. You know, it was business. Because, you know, this is this, these guys' job, isn't it? And getting, you know, becoming big in America is like you know, the ultimate promotion. Definitely CEO of rock and roll. <laughs> but ironically, their first gig in America was playing on a bill with The Who in New York City, an extended stand, but it was not the kind of thing <laughs> that broke them big at all. Tell us about this disastrous stand they did for Murray the K. Well, Murray the K was you know, very much a early 60s guy in terms of the way he looked at rock and roll. And it was, you know, he did package tours. He and he did these big sort of festivals where you'd have like forty bands on the bill and they'd all have you know fifteen minutes if they were lucky. 
And because The Who were coming over and they were also on Reaction Records, it was basically a package that Cream were put on. And it was a good way of uh, just getting them, you know, their foot in the door and visiting New York. Because if you think The Who before uh, that also were not really a name over here, the Anglophiles loved them, the British Invasion fans knew who they were, but they needed to come over here and be visible. So, you know, they both went over and they played this thing and, you know, they, they probably had more fun exploring New York than they ever did on stage. Yeah, it's hard to imagine the cream doing a 15-minute set <laughs> for multiple times a day for an audience of 12-year-olds. It's um, I know, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's but, just, you know, they really but did. But that's it, what uh, pop music was at that time, and it was still pop music. Um, it didn't really become rock until, you know, 67 is probably the dividing line. But when Cream came over, you know, they were a pop group and they were playing to a pop audience. Um, most British bands of the era can tell you about playing, you know, student balls, um, but also playing, you know, high schools. Um, a friend of mine saw the young rascals in their school gymnasium. <laughs> yeah, my father-in-law had the same experience with the Love and Spoonful playing his high school prom. Um, yeah, that's what bands had to do because that was the circuit, really, unless you got a good support tour, like, you know, Jimi Hendrix opening for the Monkees. Oh, my God, that must have been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Until he got kicked off for scandalizing um, the teen tweens mothers. But yeah. the next time Creams comes back, it's like they're in a new world. They, they play their first gigs at the Fillmore West. They play the Whiskey in L.A. Uh, they play the Cafe Agogo in New York, the Grande Ballroom in Detroit. Like I said, tell us about this new ballroom circuit and, and how Cream went over there and how this is the real inauguration of the rock era. And, well, I was going to say that was uh, where rock became rock when bands deliberately focused their audience's attention on A, albums, and B, the live show. And venues reacted to that. And, you know, the Fillmore was probably the trailblazer. Venues reacted to that by seeing that there was an audience out there that wanted to hear the whole album live and they wanted improvisation and they wanted jamming and they wanted all this stuff. So yeah, venues, again, business venues grew up to cater to that. You know, FM radio came into its own at the same time. There was a whole bunch of, and it's hard to say, you know, was it the musicians who caused the industry to go in that direction or was it the industry that prompted the musicians uh, but it was a very American phenomenon it wasn't really happening anywhere else for another couple of years so again if you wanted to play it to an audience that was going to sit quietly and listen to you and applaud in all the right places you came to America because if you played Britain, Germany, Japan wherever you were going to get a room full of screaming girls the teeny bopper trap. 
Um, yeah, it's very hard to it's very hard to separate the the musical advances from the business advance industry advances at that time because it was very much hand in hand. It was like yeah, you know, we mentioned nineteen seventy seven earlier. Suddenly, there were a hell of a lot of venues for punk bands to play, which you know, a year ago, a year before, they hadn't been. Venues open specifically for this new form of music. And that's what happened in 67. In Britain, you know, a lot of psychedelic clubs like UFO opened. But British psych was always, and, you, and to get back to what you asked about cream and British psych, it was always very, sort of a, a strange beast, British psych, because you can pick up oh shit, thousands now of CD compilations, box sets, anthologies of lost psych, all from 67, 68. And none of it was a hit. Yeah, there were the bands you mentioned. There was probably 10, 20, even marginally British psychedelic hit singles in the UK in 67. And there was, you know, 200,000, maybe not that many, but an awful lot of bands that went nowhere. They had wonderful names like Boeing Duveen and Frabjoy and the Runcible Spoon and The Sin and Fire and so on and so forth, Blossom Toes. I was going to bring that one up. All of whom are great bands and you listen to them now and it's like, how was this band not huge? But they weren't because the majority of people who bought singles did not really care for psychedelia. They just wanted a good pop song that they could tap their toes to and scream at. And the band, yeah, bands like Cream got caught in that. The British psych scene was not top 20 material. So and anyone for tennis, anyone for tennis, which was like the ultimate whimsical psych song, the elephants are dancing on the brains of squealing mice. I mean, what a line. That was not going to be a hit because, you know, the eight-year-olds want to listen to that. <laughs> and and then there's the very weird uh, TV appearance they did. I think it was the Smothers Brothers show where they they, they sent a film and somebody – murders a bunch of frogs in the video and it's you know wildly off and you can see that it's nauseating and upsetting the band it was something they had nothing to do with and um you know it's it's just fascinating to me that on the one hand they're going from you know the Fillmore West in August of 67 by 68 they're playing Bill Graham's Winterland which is the same promoter but a much bigger venue that that holds thousands of people rather than hundreds they've uh, you know, they're playing the Boston Tea Party. They're playing Madison Square Garden uh, for their farewell shows. It just becomes this massively huge thing. But at the same time, they're still wrestling with Stigwood's outdated promotional ideas and, you know, things like this inappropriate video, singles like Anyone for Tennis that didn't really fit in with what they were doing on their albums, which was increasingly long blues jams. 
And then they get into the farewell tour. Let's hear, um, this is Sunshine of Your Love from the farewell concert in England in a live version of Sunshine and Your Love from Cream's Farewell Concerts. And so, you know, Clapton has this crisis of confidence triggered in part by hearing Dylan's Great White Wonder bootlegs, which is the what later became the basement tapes. He also hears the band's music from Big Pink. He even goes out to Woodstock and meets the band, um, apparently tried to join up, but they wouldn't have him, and announces the band's going to break up. And this is when Stigwood gets in there and there's going to be, you know, not one, but two farewell tours on two different continents, a farewell album, the whole thing. But one aspect of the conflict that I didn't know of until I read the book was the political environment in America in 1968. It's this seething cauldron. They, they played Boston the same night as James Brown, the night after MLK was killed and there's massive riots uh, all over the country. And the band itself was politically divided. What was the split in the band, and and how did that contribute to their breakup? I think when you get, I mean, most bands there is a division of, um, yeah, of political beliefs. Um, was it? Oh God, I can't remember who it was, but some relatively new band recently kicked out a member because he was, you know, anti-COVID vaccination. There have been a oh, yeah. number of bands that have done that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, th- that wasn't unusual. And there had always there's always been a political tension in the band. You know, and I think we can probably, uh, we can probably guess which direction they <laughs> the people went in. Um, I don't remember, actually, I don't remember the specifics of this one. I think Bruce was was a socialist and Baker was a Tory. And yeah, as I yeah, as I said, you know, we can probably already guess which direction people went in. Yeah, um, and then Clapton's current political um, leanings were, you know, uh, told then too. He was you describe him as a traditionalist, so that I think is a pretty good way to describe it because he wasn't sophisticated enough to truly be a Tory the way that. Ginger Baker was, but you know he he makes some racist remarks about Hendrix. A remark I I'd, I'd say they were racist remarks um, about Hendrix at the time. Even though he was friends with Hendrix and an admirer of Hendrix, he sort of wrote off some of the admiration of Hendrix as people sexualizing black men, which was an aspect of it, but not the whole thing. And then later on, he's got his infamous uh, Enoch Powell remarks in the '70s that he had pretty well recovered from. Publicly, and now he's gone full on with Van Morrison and the anti-vax stuff. So I think at this point, you know, we can say Clapton was this reactionary force. It was just very interesting to read about the last tour when they each have different dressing rooms. They're rarely seeing each other. They're all having 
um, at least Bruce and Clapton are having psychological breakdowns. At one point, Bruce shows went, went to the airport and tried to escape. Uh, yeah, Bruce had, had um, allegedly attempted suicide. Um, Ginger Baker tried to stick a fire extinguisher up his behind. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of unpleasantness behind the scenes. And um, the, band, the band was not built to last. When you really sort of step back, and that was another point I wanted to make in the book, was when you step back, it's almost like you took three very, very opposed figures. I said, right, you're going to be an extremely successful pop group that's going to do exactly what you are told. It was never going to work. Yeah, these were not three guys that you could tell what to do. And and Imagine putting Axl Rose in a band with Jeff Beck and say, sort it out. That's a pretty apt um, analogy because, yeah, the three of them, and especially with Clapton going through this personal transformation and his music never approaches any of the directions Cream pursued. Um, yeah. You know, he he abandons heavy rock. He never touches psychedelia again. He never really plays extended <laughs> solos. And, you know, I think Derek and the Dominoes and some of his early solo albums, the, the live album he did with Delaney and Bonnie, certainly have their virtues. But if yeah. you like over-the-top psychedelia and if you like heavy rock, um, you know, I would say it's a big loss. But honestly, Clapton, Bruce and Baker laid out the template. They said, here's how you do it. Here's some of the directions you can go on. And we're done. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Um I mean, Clapton, Clapton's a weird fish, isn't he? Because, I mean, he does still do, you know, or into the 70s and probably beyond him, and he was still doing his long extended solos. I mean, you listen to some of the live recordings from the mid-70s in particular. I mean, he was still, he was probably playing the best guitar of his life because he was in control now. There was nobody else wanted to grandstand alongside him. There was no one said, okay, you've been going for two hours. Can I have a solo, please? He could just let rip. And he went back to being Slowhand, which was his nickname at the beginning. He played very slow, very deliberate, and really quite beautifully when he wanted to. Yeah, there's no denying I thought I'd sent you to sleep. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> no, my dog's going crazy. So I'm, I'm playing with my mute button to try to spare everyone um, um, an extended jam from Preston the Chihuahua. Captain, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, at the same time, you also have to say Captain wrote Wonderful Tonight, for which, you know, he should not be forgiven. Um. <laughs> Yeah, and he did do a lot of very strange things, which when you look at what the three members of Cream went on to do, and we all say, well, you know, Ginger Baker was obviously motivated by money. Um, Clapton was the one who actually sat down and corrected every commercial mistake Cream made in that he could still play long solos, he could still play huge venues, but he could also have huge hit singles. 
that he wrote and got the publishing for. Yes. And, uh, you know, you have to say, okay, you write these songs and okay, you know, some of them aren't great, but, you know, the, they would have fit on Cream albums, you know, with a little bit of rearrangement. Why weren't you writing them then? What happened? <laughs> that That is interesting. And of course, he also did a lot of J.J. Kale and Bob Marley songs for bit, hit, big hit singles. And it's ironic that Baker's band, the Ginger Baker Air Force, becomes one of the biggest money-losing propositions in rock history because it's this massive supergroup. Um, so, it was originally designed for one show, with Denny Lane and and others, Steve yeah. Wonder and, and others were perfectly fine for what it was, bringing in a lot of his obsession with African rhythms and extended jazz playing. But Atlantic thought that they had Cream or Led Zeppelin on their hands and printed up you know a gazillion copies of the album and put them out on tour, which is this massive money losing proposition. And then Jack Bruce goes on. Uh, his, his album Song for a Tailor is pretty well regarded among rock fans. Did some jazz stuff had drug problems, never really um, captured the same kind of commercial fire. But then he had all the royalties from Cream at the same time. He and and Peter Brown were absolutely set for life from the royalties there. What's your final thought on Cream? What's its place in music? Um, It's place in music. It's responsible for a lot of very terrible things that happened, but it's also responsible for a lot of good things that happened. And really, I think everybody who listens to them can figure out which is which. Um, and they were the first, yeah, they were, I still have problems with calling them a supergroup because supergroups tend to be made up of people from bands you really care about. Um, whereas, you know, the Graham Bond organization <laughs> really didn't fit into that category even at the time. Um, but they did. They started the fashion for supergroups. They started the fashion for blues improvisation. I don't want to say jam bands because then Grateful Dead supporters will start gnashing their teeth. Yeah, very different category. Yeah, but it's a, yeah, it's a blues improvisation jam bands. They started the fashion for that. They made long concerts more popular. Um, they made things bigger and louder. And was it um, Tom Dowd was amazed the first time he took Cream into the studio that they played everything full blast, whether they needed to or not. They just did. They just made things big and loud. And open people's eyes, I think, to a lot of possibilities in rock and roll that had not really been considered before. Yeah, like the value of a virtuoso, which whether we agree that's a good thing or not, in a way they paved the field, uh, paved the way for pro rock because suddenly people saw, well, you don't just have to play three scratchy chords and shout about your baby you know you can just go off on these in you know, endless noodles and show people what you can do yeah, and get paid by them paid by the note and um, big stacks yeah a huge stacks and it's like <laughs> they just made everything 
you know, bigger and more important and more powerful. And that, I mean, that was probably a good thing. You know, they opened a lot of a musician's eyes. You know, but, and again, them and Hendrix. Um, <clears throat> they made a lot of things that happened over the next few years possible. Because musicians would suddenly, as much as Cream felt themselves caged by their success, other bands were freed. You know, the I... Pete Townsend necessarily have come up with something like Tommy if, you know, Cream and Hendrix had not said, well, you know, you don't have to write about you know, masturbation and girls with shaky hands anymore. You can do this. I think that's a good way to wrap it up. The book is Cream, the first supergroup. My guest has been Dave Thompson. Dave, always a treat to have you on. I hope to have you back soon. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Robert Harwood to discuss his book, I went down to St. James Infirmary and the research which has completely upended our understanding of the origins of a song that's been sung by everyone from Louis Armstrong to the White Stripes. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.